Children's books are pretty magical, don't you think? They hold a very special place in our memories and in our lives. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. In the spotlight, I've got a woman who spent her entire career in children's literature as an editor and a literary critic. She's the former editor-in-chief of the Hornbook magazine, and she rose through the ranks to become vice president at Houghton Mifflin in Boston, where she oversaw children's and young adult book publishing. Wait, there's more. She's also the author of many books, including 500 Great Books for Teens and The Essential Guide to Children's Books. Her name is Anita Sylvie, and she is widely known as the fairy godmother of children's literature. As we settled into the studio, I had to ask her, when you were growing up, what was your favorite children's book? I have one because of its emotional significance. And I would have to say that The Secret Garden, Frances Hodgkin Burnett, is without question my favorite book. But I've read it as an adult many times. But my mother's great aunt bought a first edition and read it. And then she shared it with my mother. And my mother passed that book on to me. And it sits at the top of my shelf now. And it's literally my lifeline to the women in my family who cared about literacy and reading and sharing a story with a young person, first with my mother and then with me. So it has a value simply because it was one of those great books shared in the home. When I interview people for everything I need to know, I learned from a children's book, very high-ranking people would get very soft and cuddly about their mother sitting them on their lap. Steve Forbes, you know, running the Forbes empire, and he would talk about his mother reading to him and what the story meant to him and how it still affected his life. So children's books are not only the story in them, it's the story of who gets them to us, who shares them. Isn't it so true as well that... A great children's book can touch your heart when you're six years old Mm -hmm. and touch your heart when you're 66 years old. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Anne of Green Gables, when you read it in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s, it has a whole other level with it. So, yes, that's why the classics are so important, because they tend to be those books that not only do they last over time, we can go back to them over time. Our childhood frames us, Anita. It is the foundation of our lives. So I thought maybe for this interview, we'd start from the beginning with you. Can you tell us where you come from and what life was like in your house? I come from families that were from southern Ohio, and my mother met my father on the campus of Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. My dad went over to fight in World War II. He was, in fact, on Iwo Jima. He was head of Army Communications on Iwo Jima, and he is one of the people who came out alive. They settled in 1950 in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And it was, I think, a really typical family of the 50s, although my mother's college educated. Her mother was college educated. They both trained to be teachers. In many ways, was that sort of idyllic, Midwestern, very uncomplicated life? I could walk to school. Nobody had to lock their doors. Nobody had to lock their doors. My friends lived in the neighborhood. There was virgin land outside in parcels of it. And I would go out there exploring and find all the animals and the salamanders. And (laughs) do you know what I mean? mean, Yeah. But we got together at night and played kickball in the yards. I read and I read and I read. Some of my childhood friends say to me that they are so happy that I went into children's books because I was always putting something in their hands and saying, oh, you really should read this. This is a really great book. (laughs) There was something about 
reading that gave me a sense of, wait a minute, there's a whole other world out there. There are whole other possibilities. What was the message in your house about education, about work ethic? I can honestly say both my parents, education was everything. They set up a college fund for me when I was one year old. Every time I did babysitting jobs or there was a birthday or whatever, they put money in this to take care of wherever I wanted to go. It was, it was incredibly important. And work ethic was what ruled. I mean, my father became head of engineering for several firms around the Fort Wayne area. They had trained him at MIT and Harvard in the Army for Army Communications Radar. So he became part of the television industry and worked with Philo Farnsworth to develop TVs and things. And he worked 14-hour days, all that I remember him. Do you know what I mean? And on weekends. The whole thing was that you worked hard and you did your best. I think it was a very typical family at that time. Who was your role model when you were growing up? Oh, that's hard to say. I had wonderful relationships with both my grandmothers. They were just so special to me. So both of them were such role models. Certainly my teachers were role models. I mean, I remember Miss Cummings in second grade, Miss Reinhardt in fifth grade. That's a long time. And the librarian. And the librarian who used to let me borrow books out of the library. Even I used to take the Atlas home, of all things, because I loved tracing Portugal and Spain and figuring out where everything was in the world. So it was those wonderful adults. There were wonderful people in our church. I mean, I guess I would say that I was surrounded by a lot of adults who really set an incredible example. It also sounds like you were surrounded, and you told this about the Secret Garden, you were surrounded by strong women. Yes, absolutely. And that belief. That you could do anything. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go to college? What was your major? And did you know what you wanted to do with your life, Anita? I didn't at all know what I wanted to do with my life by the time I get to be 17 and have to head off to college. And my father said it is just unacceptable for you to go to school and not know what you want to do. So I went to Indiana University. Um, I'd been there before. I loved it. It's an idyllic campus. A lot of my friends from high school were going. And I got a major in education. That was at least, there was a job at the end of education. But I took a lot of English courses, political science. There were a lot of things I was interested in. And then I went on to the University of Wisconsin to get a master's degree. And that was in speech and theater. My partner at the time got a very good job teaching in Boston. And I went with him. We loaded everything in the car, a Volkswagen Bug, our cat, um, all <laughs> possessions, and drove a 1,000 miles to Boston because the, his job was in Boston College. Oh, Boston College. I'm a BC girl. Oh, well, That's I, amazing. I, I, we got an apartment right there in the area. And I have to tell you that it was a love affair at first sight with Boston for me. I mean, it was, this was everything I'd hunted for that I hadn't found in Indiana, you know. There really were things going on in Boston. There was history. There was culture. And, of course, it was too late. We arrived in August, and it was too late to get any kind of job in the schools. But fortunately, he had a friend from Tufts University who was head of adult publishing at Little Brown. And when he was talking to Bill Phillips, Bill Phillips said, well, you know, there's an opening in the children's book department. Do you think Anita would be interested in the children's book department? And I heard that, and I still to this day remember my response, which was, oh, I think it'd be fun to work in children's books, you know, because if I can't work with them directly, it would be fun to do that. And 52 years later, it is still fun to work in children's books. I do believe in the deity, and I do think that I was fortunately led 
even the interview, that was a time in Boston Publishing where everybody from all the New England schools and all, all had relatives in the house. They all had a very similar background. And I come in. I Fresh from Indiana. Hey, between my toes, you know, <laughs> having no Eastern sophistication, but talking about the story hours I'd done, the kind of books I could find for the kids, the kind of books that I couldn't. I had to do readings in inner city at the time, and there weren't books featuring black characters. And so I'm talking to the person who hires me about this. He said, the reason I hired you was I looked around the department and I thought, you know, I've never hired anybody who actually worked with children. And so I managed to get a very competitive job, and that was really the beginning. And that first job in our career teaches us so much. How did you approach that first big job? Oh, everything was interesting to me. I mean... I've never even met a real living author. You have to understand. I mean, it's not that... You read plenty of them, but you hadn't met them yet. Yeah, but we were even reading dead authors in Indiana. (laughs) It's not like Boston where you've got an author around every corner. I've never even met an author. And the first week, I'm, I'm going up to the offices where they are on Beacon Hill. And Jerry Pinckney, who was one of the great black illustrators of our time, was coming down with his portfolio and introduced himself to me. And I walked him in. And even to walk him into the building was just incredible. The only thing I ever muffed that I remember in that first year, of that first job, I was called in and I was told I had a beautiful telephone voice and could I work on this switchboard? Okay. (laughs) So they put me in switchboard training. Why, thank you very much. It's been my goal in my life to be a switchboard operator. Don't call your father and tell him. I really didn't want to do this. But my problem is I'm not very mechanical. So I couldn't. It was one of those, the Suzanne phones, where you actually had to plug it in. And I lasted three days and I disconnected the CEO of the company. And so they sent me back to my that's the only opportunity that I remember that I didn't really. So make sometimes it. saying yes is not the best that's answer. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> you know what's interesting, Anita, is so many of the women who have sat right where you are for mm-hmm. this program will say the same thing. I wish I knew it was okay to say no. Ah, uh, that is. And it took a long time to learn that, right? Absolutely, and therefore. What you end up doing, you spend a certain amount of your time, I think, in your career doing what other people think you'll be good at. Yes. And I think that the real turning point often for for those who have long-term success is that moment where you suddenly realize that you've been doing what other people say you're good at and they want you to do. And you then ask yourself, okay, well, what would it be that I would like to do? So I rise through the ranks in publishing because I'm good at publishing. They were jobs based on, again, pleasing others. I guess that would be the way to say it. I had a personal counsel, and I also did some work counseling. And I started to ask myself, what would I like to do? What would really make me happy? By this point, I've spent about 35 years in the various publishing industries. And it was very clear to me that what I wanted to do was write my own books. You know, I'd made it possible for other people to do their books, but I really wanted to write my own. I'm guessing, Anita, that in order to thrive in your field, you've got to have almost like an internal compass that helps you identify greatness. What you need to do is to see possibility. Because sometimes a manuscript that you're looking at is very rough. Sometimes it's not even the right book. It's some spark or you see something like 
a plant that's coming up and everything else around it is kind of dead and wilted and then you see that well, wait, wait a minute if we if we really watered that plant it would make a beautiful part of the garden oh. I used to say there's no way you can train that I could I could train people to edit I could train them once they had something to get it into the best form but that scene of the possibility that a writer has a possibility and then encouraging them and working with them and helping them that is of course the, the great thing about editing I mean that's the thing that's so exciting How do you put yourself as a reader of a manuscript into the mindset of a child? So one of the things that is very true for both writers for children and anybody working in children's books is that we have a very high memory of our childhood. We remember the feelings of our childhood. I believe that, yes, I'm an adult now, I'm an old adult now, but that in me are all the layers of my life and that I can go back to them and I can be in touch with them. The great writers, right, people like Maurice Sendak, he could recall in you know incredible detail the things that had happened to him, the feelings that he had, that he was always, always in touch. There are millions of children's stories, but so few make it. Can you give our listeners a primer? <laughs> you know I'm going to ask you this question. On how to get a children's book published in 2022. Okay. Inquiring minds want to know. Oh, I know. This is one where a lot of groundwork and perseverance are absolutely necessary. We only need to look at the case of the most successful children's book writer of the era, J.K. Rowling, of course, who was turned down by... Everybody. Everybody. I was going to say so many British firms that there was almost nobody left by the point she finally got accepted. She's working, as we know, in the coffee shop to get heat to be able to work on the manuscript. Nobody, absolutely nobody in this day and age wants a children's book about a high magic, a wizard's... I mean, this is out... It's realistic fiction is the fiction in both Britain and U.S., and it's just perseverance, and eventually she gets in, gets a, a meeting with a man who just has come over to editorial. He's in a small British publishing house, and he really likes it. You know, he said, I mean, he, he said, I didn't know anything about it. I mean, this is one of his first books. He said, but, you know, I liked it, but he said, I did say to her, you know, we're going to publish your book, and I think they gave her a thousand... in American terms. And he said, but I just have to be honest with you. You've got to get a day job because nobody ever makes money in children's books. And as he said, he got it so right, but he got it so wrong. (laughs) You know, there are really good organizations. The Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators is definitely the best, well worth the money. And you can get yourself into a writing group, which is helpful. I would make my local librarian my new best friend in the children's room, you know, because They can tell you right now what's working with the kids in your area. If you have an audience, if you teach, I mean, a lot of teachers have moved from teaching, try things on your class. Put yourself in all kinds of situations. Give yourself time to write. The first thing I ever wrote, because I was still working at Houghton at the time, I had to get up at 3 in the morning. If that was going to work, I was going to devote a couple hours at 3 in the morning, and then I'd go in and do my regular job. And there's so much discipline. And what you had said originally was, it's perseverance. If you're going to give up, it's not going to happen for you. Exactly. Well, speaking of passion and your love, we are surrounded by these books of yours. And I want to start with everything I need to know I learned from a children's book. Life lessons from notable people from all walks of life. Tell us the story behind your decision to write this book. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you have to work very hard on a proposal to get it accepted. And sometimes you get lucky. 
And one of my good friends in the industry called me and she said, you know, we just had a blue sky meeting where they all get together and they think about what kind of book would we like to do. And what we decided we wanted to do was testimonials from people from all walks of life about the children's book that changed their life. And she said, are you interested? And I believe I waited a nanosecond. <laughs> I mean, I played hard to get on. You know, sometimes you should learn to say no, but there are sometimes you should really learn to say yes. And I said, I think that sounds brilliant because always I would ask the kind of question that you do. What was the book that you loved as a child? I've been having that interview. We wanted people who were known, but we also wanted people who had something to say. This kind of thing could become kind of trite, and I wasn't really interested in trite. So sure. we really wanted people who might be articulate about it. So I did my research. I had some sense of who had made statements. But Jay Leno had always talked about Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. <laughs> so I knew if I could get a, an interview with Jay Leno, he would talk to me about Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel. So we came up with our list of about 300 people. And we didn't have to leave that list. I wanted to keep on doing the interviews because I love doing the interviews so much. And You're, by the way, a very good interviewer. You're so easy. <laughs> we always like to say in broadcast, you know, just ask a good question and then sit back and let them talk. Right. That's what Anita <laughs> Sylvia is like to interview, let me tell you. So I just wanted to keep. And Sonia Sotomayor had just come on the Supreme Court and she loved Nancy Drew. And I said, I've got it. And my editor was like, no, you've got to stop doing this. We have got to put this. You know, we're supposed to go out for holiday season. It's a good so. problem to have when you have a lot of information. Who surprised you the most in these interviews? Oh, there were so many surprises. I always say that Kirk Douglas, Mr. Spartacus, I had heard through friends in California that he was also a Mike Mulligan fan. And I thought, oh, wouldn't that be nice to have Jay Leno and Kirk Douglas on the same book? Because that way I could set up things, you know, visually in the book. So I called him and he paused and he said, Really, if I think about it, my favorite book is The Bobsy Twins. <laughs> I can I, just hear Kirk Douglas's <laughs> voice saying this. And you can imagine, fortunately, you know, I almost, I mean, this is on the phone, so he doesn't get to see my face. I'm still thinking of him as Spartacus. And he said, well, you know, my family was an immigrant family, and my sister was the first one to learn English. And that was her favorite book. And so she would sit with me on the couch, and she would read me The Bobsy Twins in English. And he said... Because I learned to read, I was able to become an actor. One of my favorite artists and someone whose music I've played on the radio is Pete Seeger. Let your voice be heard. The life and times of Pete Seeger. He's so much fun to talk to. I mean, he is literally somebody that you ask a question, he goes an hour. There's no stop button. So I wrote him a letter and said, would you give me your blessing to do the book? And the day after Christmas, I literally got a call from him. And he said, you've got my blessing. Let's start talking. And, and there it is. There it is. It took me eight years to get it done. I got to talk to him and he would sing to me. And it was, oh. just, it was just fabulous. It was wonderful. This is work. a pretty magical career for you. <laughs> it's not been bad. <laughs> I am looking at some other books. Uh, Undaunted. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about the wildlife of, how do I say this? Barute Galdikos. Thank you so much and her fearless quest to save orangutans, mm -hmm. the wildlife of Jane Goodall, mm -hmm. and the wildlife of Diane Fossey. Yeah. What is it like to be in the presence of people like this? I can really be a fangirl, you know. I mean, I did, Me a, too. I did a book on Pete Seeger because I'm really a fangirl of Pete Seeger's and Jane Goodall. You know, it's kind of hard to get better than Jane Goodall. So part of what you have to do is get over that, you know, because I've, you've got to be a serious interviewer and you've got to get over that that sort of aw shucks. I'm, st I'm starting to have that kind of a moment with you right now, so I hope I'm controlling myself. 
my mentor was a man named Hal Miller. He was the CEO of Houghton. I had breakfast with him about once a month, and I said, Hal, I, you know, why are these people agreeing to talk to me? And he said, because you are taking them to something that's very positive in their life. They have very good memories of this. He said, you know, if you're a CEO of the company, everybody's always doing negative interviews with you and trying to do muckraking and taking you into things. And he said, they're agreeing because you're taking them back to something they feel a lot of love for. It's E.B. White who said, all my books are love letters, essentially, Mm. to the world. And that's really what's been true of all my books. They've been love letters, whether to the women who did extraordinary things and going to do animal research or Pete Seeger or the people who made children's books their lives and really created great children's books. And so I think for me, as long as love infuses everything I do, then I'm at the place I want to be at while I'm creating. Polar Express. Chris Van Allsburg. I saw the beginnings. I saw the very beginnings. Chris always said that he had this dream and he'd had this image of a train going north in the middle of the night and it was very snowy. And he asked himself the question, where would it be going? And the first thing he thought of was the North Pole. And so that's when that's where the Polar Express came from. That's where he sat down to, to sketch the idea of the Polar Express. Next few questions we ask everybody who sits where you are. So, Anita, you are now in the hot seat. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I give it some time. I pray and meditate on it. I try to see if there's some other way that I can look at it. Because often, if you change your perspective about 25 degrees, you suddenly the problem seems a little different and you're able to come up with a solution. Okay, so I do some of that. I can't remember any really major obstacles that somehow or another doing, except for this being Suzanne's phone at Little Brown and Company, no amount of meditation was going to make me a telephone operator. Okay, There are certain reasons why we're not supposed to do things. So that was the universe saying, we have other plans for Anita Sylvie. That's exactly right. That was another plans. And part of it is, is, yeah, it really is evaluating, okay, how much do I want this? Because if I really want it, then what are the steps I have to take yeah. to get this to happen? Obstacles are problems to be solved, and you're always going to have problems to solve in career work. As you look back on this incredible career of yours, Anita, what are you most proud of? I think that what I'm the most proud of is that I never lowered my standards. As a publisher, you sometimes are offered books that you know are going to make money. You have to make money as a publisher. I I made a lot of money as a publisher, but I always preferred to make it on something that I really believed in. There were times I certainly told editors to go ahead with their instincts because I trusted my editors, you know, and I would do that. I did a book called 100 Best Books for Children, and whether I was editor of the Horn Book or whether I was a publisher or whether I'm where I am now, I'm always hunting for the best book mm. for children. You know, my mantra is a quote by Walter de la Mare, only the rarest kind of best in anything can be good enough for the young. And I've stayed true to that for 52 years. So I've stayed true to that idea. Final question. Right now, in this chapter of your life, what does success mean to you? Success is writing a book I'm proud of. Some may sell better than others. It may start out rough. It may not look too good at the beginning. But if I have to go through six edits or eight edits or eight years on Pete Seeger, if I have to put in eight years, at least by the end of the time, I have something. So I guess that's it. Just to be proud of my own work. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest today on The Story Behind Her Success. Oh, thank you, Candy. And that's the story behind her success for this week. 
My thanks to author, editor, and literary critic of children's literature, Anita Sylvie, fondly known as the fairy godmother of children's literature. Her website, anitasylvie.com. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile. So if you know someone I should feature on the show, let me know about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. What's your story? <laughs>